Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. 
and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off our Melissa Matheson series with a 1979 horse swimmer, The Black Stallion. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the next reel. Please do that. There are lots of great things that you get when you do that. Uh, like first and foremost, join us on the Slack group. We'd love to talk to you. With, and, and then you can hear the show early when I get it done early. Probably a bad week for me to tout that. <laughs> uh, sorry everybody for it being four days late last week but that rarely happens you have to admit it's like twice it's happened in five years so <laughs> it's a bad week <laughs> anyway with that everybody let's do trailers <laughs> Andy, what is the deal now i mean this what is the deal with tom cruise he is a robot <laughs> He is Benjamin Buttoning. Tom Cruise is Benjamin Buttoning just through life. He is getting younger with every movie he makes. I don't get it. It makes me feel old. I'm I'm breathing hard just talking about him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what magic potions he's drinking, but uh, he's clearly made a pact with something. Seriously. I am talking this week about American Made, and I, I'm going to say something out loud. I'm a fan, perhaps guiltily, certainly pleasurably, of Air America. I don't know, I, I can't explain it, but there was something about that movie. Robert Downey Jr., Mel Gibson, I super connected with that film, and I, <laughs> I just love the idea of, the, of, you know, these renegade pilots uh, running illicit goods. On behalf of the government, I am I I am not in favor of it politically, but I love movies about it. That's what this movie is, Andy. American Made. Tom Cruise stars in uh, this uh, film, written by Gary Spinelli, directed by Doug Liman, and uh, it is all about a pilot who lands work. Do you see what IMDb did there? Mm. For the CIA as a drug runner in the South during the 1980s. I think this trailer has an incredible amount of energy. It is exciting. He lands a plane in a neighborhood and (laughs) Tom Cruise riding a kid's BMX bike covered in cocaine. Uh, I'll show up for that scene alone. Also stars Caleb Landry Jones, Jesse Plemons, Sarah Wright, Domhnall Gleeson, Gemma Mays, uh, so many uh, great people. Connor Trenier is in this movie as George W. Bush. Connor Trenier, Andy. Anything? Should I remember him? Yes, Trenier? you should, because he was Charles Trip Tucker III in Star Trek Enterprise, which was <laughs> so... <laughs> Shut up. It was so unfairly canceled after only three seasons, uh, and so he is back. Uh, he's actually been working quite a bit. But I imagine that he has been sitting alone waiting for the call to play George W. Bush for this movie with Tom Cruise. Anyhow, I am really uh, looking forward to this movie. I didn't know anything about it uh, until we were filling out our our spreadsheet for uh, movies that we're going to talk about at the film board in the second half of the year. And now I'm excited for this one. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I've been excited. I mean, you know me, I'm the guy who did a a deep dive into Cruz's filmography and watched every single film of his. 
um, because I think he's a really compelling uh, uh, perf- uh, performer. I think that he's always uh, investing so much of himself on screen. And uh, regardless of what you think of him outside of the movie world, um, I, I find him a really fun person to watch on screen. And so I definitely want to watch this. I think he um, is an interesting actor choice to play this character. I haven't seen him do something quite like this. So it's going to be exciting. And w- with him and Doug Lyman knowing what they've done together and just other things they've both done in the past, I'm definitely in and excited for this one. So, yes, sir. Count me in. Well, you can be counted in in uh, late August if you're in Hungary, Andy. And uh, from then, if you travel through the Netherlands, Bulgaria, Australia, late August, all the way to Portugal, you can see it before it arrives in the U.S. Even in Germany and Greece, Andy, September 7th, France, September 13th, Argentina, September 28th, Andy, if you really want to see this and get your Tom Cruise on early before the rest of us here, and then you could see it on September 29th. That's when it comes here. And the Ouch. Russians, the Russians, this is a, the Russians are being snubbed. They don't get it until October 12th. I am sorry, comrades. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is, if this isn't a sign of the times, Andy, I don't know what is. The Russians <laughs> are getting release windows pushed by a week and a half. <laughs> <This>. <laughs> What's yours? Whoa, uh, so much to read into this uh, particular trailer release. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Pete, speaking of, uh, of uh, potential paths our future could take... <laughs> My trailer is uh, What Happened to Monday? What did happen to Monday, Andy? This trailer, I had heard nothing about this uh, film. Uh, It's directed by Tommy Wercola, who, uh, do you know our friend Tommy Wercola, Pete? Uh, Tell me about our friend Tommy (laughs) Wercola. Do you remember Hansel and Gretel, Hansel and Gretel, uh, Witch Hunters? Tommy (laughs) Wercola. He also did Dead Snow and Dead Snow 2. The, yes, uh, he did. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he is uh, now helming this film, which uh, it, it sounds like just such a fascinating sci-fi concept. And I love everything about it. I love what I see in the trailer. Um, it just it's it's a great sci-fi world. Um, the IMDb plot sums it up. In a world where families are limited to one child due to overpopulation, a set of identical septuplets must avoid being put to a long sleep by the government and dangerous infighting while investigating the dis- disappearance of one of their own. The disappearance of one of their own, uh, ref- uh, you're getting that referencing from the title because the father, played by uh, the wonderful Willem Dafoe, uh, names his seven daughters, uh, all played by Numi Rapace once they're uh, of age. He names them all from the day of the week. And that's the one day of the week that they get to be the one who goes outside posing as his one daughter. And there's this one time where Monday happens to go out and she doesn't come back. And so Tuesday through Sunday, now try to figure out what happened to Monday and try to decide, should they go out and see if they can find her? Or is that going to put them all in jeopardy or what? Super interesting. And Glenn Close is in it. Apparently Robert Wagner is in it. Um, I love just the vibe of this, that just the sci-fi world it, it, it creates here is just fascinating. And I hope that it holds up because uh, some of the stuff that uh, Wercola has done might not be what you would call um, great cinema, 
you might call it fun cinema. Um, I hope this is fun, but I do also hope it's great. What did you think? Well, I'm a huge Orphan Black fan, and that's the that's the vibe that I get out of this film. And I spend most most of the season wishing that I could see Tatiana Maslany playing, you know, clones in more things. Uh, and so I, you know, I found myself really intrigued by this. I think Numi Rapace is is terrific, though. You know, I've seen some questionable trailers of late, and. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I, I think she's really great and maybe not making great choices. And so I worry about this. However, the trailer looks great. The atmosphere looks great in terms of, of the splash of world building that we get through, you know, art and production design in the trailer. I think it, it feels really good. Uh, and it, you know, Willem Dafoe, uh, awesome. Glenn Close, really, uh, what's going on with Glenn Close? Because it seems like she's on a string of movies where she plays kind of the the maniacal uh, political leader. I don't know. I just love Glenn Close in anything that she does. So I'm excited to see her popping up in these in these types of sci-fi films that I never would have expected her to be in, like The Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Or um, or what was the one the the girl with all the gifts? Yep. It's, well, that it, was a different thing, though. That was different. She wasn't the. <laughs> she well. well no, I, I but, love seeing well, her. What in there, I mean, but this is, is a certain kind of of role for her, and I feel like I've seen her. The the shots that we get in the trailer, I've seen her do before under movies of different titles. You can't say I the just, girl with all the gifts fits in that. No, I'm just saying I love seeing her taking this step into like these types of sci-fi films that I haven't seen before. Yeah. So I welcome it, regardless of whether she's playing the types of uh, antagonists that she has before. Well, it certainly looks like she's having a lot of fun, uh, you know, choosing roles at this point in her career. And I, I love that. I think that's great. Uh, yeah. So more power to her. Anyway, I'm really I, I am. I'm guardedly excited about this movie. It, it fills all, uh, a clone shaped hole in my heart. <laughs> well, right now, unfortunately, there the only release dates are France, August 23rd and Greece, August 31st. The U.S. and U.K. are listed as 2017 but it doesn't have any dates, and that's it for release dates. So hopefully uh, things will get uh, shaken out at some point, and we will be able to tell people when to see it. But otherwise, hopefully before the end of the year. Maybe the black is blue today. Did you ever think of that, Andy? If you want to believe in magic, in beauty, in friendship, and freedom, believe in the black stallion biggest, the blackest, and the strongest, the most beautiful horse that ever was. Francis Ford Coppola presents Walter Farley's timeless classic, Whose Time Has Come, The Black Stallion. The story of a legendary horse who could only be tamed by a young boy's love. The Black Stallion, Andy, 1979. Directed by Carol Ballard, written by Melissa Matheson. Uh, and this is uh, based on the book by Walter Farley. Uh, it is a beautiful family story about a boy and his horse. What did you think of The Black Stallion? I This is a film, this and its sequel, The Black Stallion Returns, are two films that I kind of grew up with. And I just have such a special place in my heart for them. Uh, I just love them to pieces, and uh, watching this film again, 
um, with with more adult eyes just really uh, was exciting to see how artful it was and how um, patient it was and just how much detail there was in the world building and just the the sense of place and time and uh, just the 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 way the characters just kind of unfolded on screen. It was a really beautiful film, and I just completely fell in love with it. Uh, I did too. I, I it surprised me. Uh, first of all, just the the level of patience in the film. I haven't seen it in many many years, and my memory of it is that uh, you know the opening sequence, the shipwreck and the island experience, is very short, and then it gets into the exciting horse race stuff. And it turns out that's not it at all. Uh, and there is a, a you know a full 48, 49 minutes of the film. We're on that island and we're experiencing that island and it's nearly silent. And I found I found myself reflecting on Hayao Miyazaki and the this concept of Ma that we've been talking about because it feels so much like there is that level of peace and and uh, just sustaining energy in every uh, brief clip, you know, throughout these wonderful island sequences, um, you know, where where the horse and the boy are not in frame at all. And I, I just was, you know, looking at it almost as a meditation. I, I thought it was just beautiful. And then we get into the character, uh, you know, portion of the film, and seeing Mickey Rooney was, well, it was a delight. And, and Hoyt Axton, come on, uh, you know, I wish we'd had a little bit more of him just, you know, because I, I adore him so much, uh, and the same with with Terry Gar, uh, uh, who uh, you know we can talk about her just the the way the character was written in the film, uh, sort of curiously uh, later, and the incredibly talented Kelly Reno uh, playing the young boy Alec Ramsey. Uh, all of these folks, I think, just delivered a wonderful portrait that didn't have to pull any um, you know stunts to keep attention through the duration of the film. And that is the thing for me that that I feel like I'm celebrating the most, that I watched it with my family, and not once did attention get pulled from the screen. They were drawn in to what was being painted before them, uh, and, and they didn't need robots, and they didn't need Transformers, and they didn't need superheroes and capes, and they didn't need uh, gun battles or spaceships. They just wanted to see what happened with that horse. And I thought I think that's a really beautiful thing. It's definitely something that Melissa Matheson as a writer has kind of tapped into. I mean, she's, you know, between that and E.T. and Indian in the Cupboard and Kundun and the BFG, there's really something about her connection with um, young characters and kind of a, a magical element in their lives. And I think that says a lot about kind of the way she approaches story and what she was uh, looking at and, and perhaps how she helped adapt this book. You mentioned her, but also Gene Rosenberg and William D. Whitliffe um, also were uh, screenwriters on this. And I think Carol Ballard and Walter Murch actually did the initial pass of it, um, but kind of got stuck. I I think that there's, there is a, a hint of kind of this... Um, magical realism uh, kind of spread through this that um, that just kind of touches on it here and there and just kind of gives this nice sense of the way the story is unfolding. You don't necessarily see people doing things the, the, the way that you normally would think they would. And so to me, it just really seems like this is a story that really is a, a good example of taking a real point of view of a character 
where we're really kind of in Alec's head through the duration of this film and just kind of seeing through things through his eyes, through a child's eyes and kind of how things are in this world. Right from the start, we're getting so much of this. Um, we're taking it in through point of view shots, through lower angle uh, shots, kind of the, the kid's eye view and sort of stuff. And uh, just look, of him looking at these little details and stuff. And, and you see this uh, building over the course of the film as, as when his dad is relaying the story of Bucephalus, uh, Alexander the Great's horse. And you get this great POV of Hoyt Axton looking directly into the camera as if he's talking to his son, telling him this story. And then shots of the kind of POV of him looking at the horse. And, and even into the end, you, these wonderful shots of him just kind of looking at the horse and looking at these details of these other riders and everything. And and one that always strikes me as kind of uh, the most perhaps magical realism, uh, realistic, magical realistic, I'm not sure what you call it, <laughs> moment when um when the uh the the character of snow uh the african american on his uh with his white horse napoleon kind of rides up in the mist as alec has fallen asleep on this hunt for for black his horse in town and it's kind of this foggy morning and and snow wakes him up and says uh you know hey uh you know what's up and he, what's wrong and he's like everything and this interesting conversation snow somehow magically seems to know where the horse is and how to find it and that this is the boy who's looking for it i don't know why that is i don't really fully understand it but there's something really kind of interesting about it without having to hopefully fall into the magical negro trope I think that they kind of do a good job of avoiding that where it just feels like there's this magical presence here. And it's just like, this is the little clue that he needed to find his horse. And I don't know. I really enjoy the way that all of that feels within the context of this film. I, I do too. And, and to your point, I, that actually, it feels like a magical thing, but even, but just after uh, Alec and his mom pull away from uh, Mickey Rooney's house, you see Snow and his horse pulling up to to stable his horse at the same barn. So there there's an answer there. Like, we know it wasn't magical. We know that Mickey Rooney had been there all night. Uh, we know that he had been trying to corral this horse, and he, when he finally got it corralled, like, the reason Snow knew that the horse was there is because his horse also lives at that barn. We see them together later. And and, and I, I think that point is one I wanted to call out because it's kind of hard to, to, to pull aside if you don't watch the movie a number of times. Like that's one of those things where I feel like Matheson and team as, uh, and, and the, as sort of writing partners uh, trust us to follow the story or to let go of just enough to enjoy the ride, and and uh, I I think it's a it's a sort of a sophisticated structure, and I I really uh, really like it. The element in there that I always question is how does he know that Alec is the kid who's looking for that particular horse? The only thing that I can piece together is that there probably were stories in the paper about this yeah. kid who was found in the boat and the horse and all that. And so he probably pieced it together. So I agree. I think that there's a logic to how all of that could have played. And so, I it's, again, that's probably why it's really not much of a problem for me. But isn't it beautiful how the, the movie affects you? And I'll speak for myself, how it affects me. Uh, as an adult watching it, when I remember my experience as a kid thinking, wow, 
I'll bet that guy really talks to his horse, his hat-wearing horse, Napoleon. I'll bet that's how he knows, because horse horses are connected somehow. That, that must be what's going on. And as an adult, uh, obviously I've let that go, and yet I still find it uh, just, you know, even as, as practically sort of pragmatic a, a structure as I manufacture in my own head, it's still kind of magical, even though I understand it. Uh, and and so you know I, I find it really touching to to your point about Melissa Matheson and her uh, the way she writes kids uh, I I found myself thinking so much about her writing kids as heroes the reason I was so compelled by these kids is because it was so easy at my age to put myself in their shoes and to think okay if I were on an island at this age. I'm sure I would do these things too. Just like my older self starts to read into what I would do if I were Han Solo or Indiana Jones, right? When I saw this movie as a, you know, sub 10-year-old, I was fascinated by it because I could be him. He was a a hero figure, Alec, that I could relate to more than any other. And and that's what I connected to when I saw this movie and and that's my sense memory of it too watching it today. Yeah, I, I love seeing these movies where you really are focusing on a kid and, and and a child who is really having these experiences. I think that it speaks a lot to um, adults who can tap into telling a story for kids that allows the story to be really for kids without feeling like it has to kind of uh, talk down to them or, or, or change the story tone or the type of story in order to cater to the kids you know this is a story that has some scary moments it has death it has a near drowning it has you know isolation and loss and all that fear that goes along with it um but i think that kids are able to kind of connect with that and i think so often stories kind of speak down to kids a little bit and i think this is another reason why we enjoy uh, miyazaki so much because he i think fits into this camp also Mm -hmm. where where you you trust that kids can handle this sort of stuff, that they can go along for the ride. I mean, read some grim fairy tales for Pete's sake. I mean, there are plenty of people dying in those things. I mean, they're they're kind of gory stories. I mean, they're they're horrifying. I mean, even going back to stuff like Pinocchio, I don't think a story has to be um, just something that that speaks to the lowest common denominator as far as kids are concerned. I think allowing for just kind of a real story to happen and trusting that kids will go along with it says a lot. And being that hero kid that you're talking about in those types of stories, I think is uh, makes it that much more engrossing. So I think that Melissa really knew how to tap into that with the story type of telling that she was doing. You want to talk a little bit about uh, her background and, and what, uh, what brought her to center stage as a, as a screenwriter? Yeah, she um she is from the LA area. Her her parents were from there. I think her dad was a journalist for the LA Times and then New Newsweek. Uh she started studying political science, but um I guess sometime while she was studying, she was a babysitter for Francis Ford Coppola's friends and met him and got to know him and then he offered her a chance to be an assistant on The Godfather Part 2. And uh, she was just like, well, that sounds great. Uh, I get to come to set and uh, bring coffee to Al Pacino. It's very exciting. You know, it's not, uh, some people think that's kind of dull, but I, you know, here I am getting to go bring coffee to Al Pacino. So she jumped at the chance. 
And from there, she went on to Apocalypse Now with him. And uh, that's where she ended up meeting Harrison Ford, who she ended up marrying uh, in 1983. Um, but before that, um, she, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't know exactly how the story happened, but uh, Coppola had been kind of encouraging her to write. And I, I'm guessing it was while they were over in uh, the Philippines filming Apocalypse Now he asked her if she would come on board to help salvage the screen fl- screenplay for the Black Stallion, and which he was producing through his company's American Zoetrope. And so she came on board, and she said, we all agree the movie should be like a children's book with just pictures. That's when I learned to take out the words to tell the story visually, which is the best training there is. So she really, you know, uh, I think, latched onto that element uh, from working with Coppola and everything. But I, I guess she came back, and I don't know if she was the last writer on it, um, my understanding, like I said, is that that Ballard, along with Walter Murch, started writing the script, and then there was she wrote with Gene Rosenberg. The two of them kind of co-wrote together, and then William Whitliff also came on to write. But his writing is much more Western-oriented uh, writing, so I'm wondering if if like maybe his didn't work, and so they brought in Melissa and Gene to kind of, as Coppola said, to uh, to fix the uh, to salvage it. So um, anyway, it's, you know, I think her backstory uh, is an interesting one and just kind of how Coppola really was a big presence in film in the in the 70s. I mean, we'll talk about his relationship with Carol Ballard here in a minute. But, uh, you know, I I think that he was kind of creating I mean, he was really trying to create this uh, incredible company that brought in artists from all um, all walks of life to kind of come make their projects and find a home. And unfortunately, I think it was um, the mid-70s with the, the rise of the blockbuster and the, the corporate takeovers of the studios and everything that really kind of put the kibosh on that after Easy Rider and everything and the kind of the, the 60s it really kind of unfortunately started killing exactly what he was trying to set out to do. And it, it didn't work to the, the the best way it could have. Plus, you know, Coppola goes and makes these these extravaganzas like Apocalypse Now that, uh, you know, he spends pretty much everything that he has. <laughs> he's, so, he's a financial roller coaster. He is, really is. But I think that um, at least he was creating a, a really interesting... A place for filmmakers to come and start working and she wasn't really a writer uh, at yet but I mean there was enough encouragement from him for her to jump on and really do it and I think that says a lot that he tapped into something that he saw there and really brought it forth so well it's a it's an amazing path that that has been cut you know just focusing on this you know particular style of filmmaking and i i think it's it's quite beautiful let's talk just a little bit about carol ballard uh and and why they make such a an interesting pairing uh when she comes on the on the scene to direct this film this was his his first film his first feature film i mean he had done uh films in school and he had done a number of short films that um I guess that he found it easier working with animals. So he did a film about uh, uh, cats. He did a film about pigs. Uh, he seemed to really kind of tap into <laughs> animal stories because it, it sounded like he was a little nervous about jumping into the world of actors and everything. But uh, And you can certainly see that in his films because he's tapped into stories about people and their relationships with animals. And certainly here, I mean, you know, devoting as as much just straight up screen time. If you look at at 
you know, efficiency of story, uh, this movie fails uh, because there is an awful lot that you could uh, you could you could cut in the first you know forty five minutes and just get to the narrative. And I think that's something that that other directors would have done. Uh, and I'm I, I love that he has the patience to have have done this. I mean, you can see it. I I don't know that I I have a sense memory of the same kind of a split in movies like like Fly Away Home, but you absolutely get that in Never Cry Wolf. I mean, Never Cry Wolf is like the whole movie is is you know this same sort of sense of celebrating the the landscape and the animals. I remember that. I feel like I remember that from Fly Away Home because there's so much of that with the geese and uh, and uh, uh, the girl's relationship with the geese and training them mm. and and helping you know learning to uh, fly in the little uh, flyer machine and then uh, teaching them to fly and there's just a lot of that sort of footage and it was beautiful I mean it was, that was a really another beautiful film that uh, also he you know um, Carol Ballard has the same sense kind of like Melissa about not feeling like you need to um, hold back on telling stories with some some potentially difficult moments for kids. Yeah, truly. Uh, you know, I think that's to, to just shine light on it and, and really examine and, and at least uh, explore what kids are okay, um, you know, ha- what kids have inside of themselves. And, and you know, Ballard also, um, you know, when he learned that Coppola was uh, getting this book and adapting it and um, looking at it himself, um, somebody had brought to his attention this whole story of Bucephalus, this uh, this horse that Alexander the Great tamed and, and rode out of the arena. Um, and it's a fantastic little moment in the film. And I think it became, for him, very iconic and a very integral element to, to put into the film because it does kind of represent uh, Alec in the film and also ends up representing his connection to his father and part of the reason that he feels he needs to kind of run that race at the end of the film. I think that is such a strong element in this story. And I, I think it was great that Ballard saw that and uh, and added it. And it sounds like he's a filmmaker who's not afraid to kind of take input from other people and kind of put it into his films. You know, he feels pretty confident in, in those sorts of decisions as long as it's moving the whole project forward. And I think that that's just a... a critical one that I'm so glad is in this film. Yeah, that's a that's a funny point too. He said of of his cinematographer that the, the you know talking about Caleb Deschanel that he has such a a unique eye. So much of the film, uh, particularly in that first half, is just Caleb's fantastic eye that he's just he just shoots and shoots. And he <laughs> he said there's a lot of the stuff in the film uh, that I didn't even know he was shooting. Uh, he just would take the camera and go shoot some waves and go shoot some rocks, and it was just so beautiful that we ended up putting it in the film, uh, you know, which seems to me to be a totally authentic experience of making this movie. Um, it, just perfect. It's funny because I heard a quote from Caleb where he says, you know, he said they were filming some scenes for so long, like for weeks on end, uh, because they filmed in, you know, all the island stuff over like three months. He yeah. said, um, you know, he <laughs> would look at Carol and go, okay, I think we got it there. He's like, no, no, no. We've only got probably two thirds <laughs> of it. We need to keep filming. And so That's I really funny. <laughs> between the two of them, they, <laughs> they ended up with a lot of extra film. <laughs> they could have made the two of these. That was um, that but, was that that was Caleb said uh, that was a, the same maybe the same place I heard this was he said people talk about all about the sunsets because it seems like there are a lot of 
a lot of shots in the first 45 minutes that where the sun is either going up or coming down, right? And he says, hey, those are not intentional. We just kept shooting until we ran out of light every day. And, and so <laughs> it just forces you to capture a lot of sunsets when you're hanging out in Sardinia. Absolutely. So funny. tough life. Oh, so tough. So tough. But, you know, uh, going back to uh, Coppola real quick, um, Carol Ballard also was somebody who was in that Coppola circle. He had met Coppola when they were in, in school together. And uh, Coppola went off to do the Godfather films and, and Ballard was struggling and he was kind of really in a bad place and he was broke and, you know, his car was going to get repossessed and all this sort of stuff. And then he got a call from Coppola who's just like, hey, I, I'm trying to get this movie made. Do you want to help with it? And that's how he kind of got into this whole thing. So it's interesting how Coppola really was doing all of that. And Ballard was another person. So, so there you go. Using his people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use you that way one day, Andy. Let's talk about first shot, last shot. <laughs> Let's. Uh, the first. This is an interesting one. We've got first uh, first shot during credits and uh, first shot after credits. And same thing at the end credits. So the first shot um, during the credits, it's a close-up shot of sand in this just brilliant orange sunlight as a fierce wind blows at it, eventually unburying the Bucephalus figurine that Alex's dad had given to him. And then we have the first shot of the film that actually is after the credit sequence, and this is possibly Alex's POV. We've got a bird's eye view looking off the railing of this uh, this big ocean liner ship straight down the side of it at the water as the ship is moving through it, kind of cutting through the water. And the last shot does a similar kind of a split. Last shot pre-credits is Alex's POV of Black's face as he looks at him in admiration. And uh, the last shots during the credits, we, we actually see Alec and Black in near silhouette riding on the beach on their island as the sun is near setting, of course, because of sunsets. Of course. Yeah. I, can I just tell you, the first shot, uh, you know, the first shot post-credits is... I, I, you know, I don't want to say something is kind of hyperbolic because it's my face is the best shot in the film. It's not, but it is the shot that most closely uh, reaches my inner 10 year old because that's a perspective that it, it's like the first perspective that I look for whenever I'm on a boat. Even to this day, as a grown man, I always go and hang my head off the side of a boat. Probably a lot of people do that. I love doing that. It's an interesting perspective. I think I'm the only one who does it, Andy. That's why it's so special. (laughs) The only one. It's all about you. (laughs) All right. Well, I really like it, and I like it because of what, uh, because of the way it connects again to the fable, the in and out uh, of this story. I think is a is a wonderful little fable, and and uh, maintains perspective while bringing us into the film. I think it works really, really well. No, I completely agree. I think what's really interesting is if you take the the outside ones that are uh, during the credits, you have Bucephalus, and this is the story of Bucephalus, and then then at the very end, you essentially have Alec and his horse, as if it's Alexander and Bucephalus on the horse on the beach. I love that. But I love that we also can really tie the other ones together as well, the ones that are... Um, after the, Alex POV. Uh, the opening credits. Yeah, it's all about his POV. This is really a story of this boy's perspective. And I think that's just a really wonderful way to kind of keep us connected with him and and kind of his world. I love it. And I have to, Pete, give an incredible shout out to whoever did the typography for the title of this film. 
I love the way that when the the title, The Black Stallion, comes up on the screen, I love the way it looks. It is the most creative font that I have seen. It's just so beautiful, and it's it just seems so perfect and fitting for the story that we are uh, going to have unfold before us. I love it. I agree. I've looked and looked for the um, the credit behind the poster and uh, the typography, and I could not find it, but it's great. Yes, it is. Casting by Vic Ramos, Carolyn Applegate doing some uncredited casting, and Stuart Aikens and Claire Walker doing the Canadian casting. They get us Kelly Reno as Alec Ramsey. After looking at sounds like thousands of young boys trying to find the right uh, person to play Alec, um, they ended up with really the most perfect child to play this part. I mean, he is just, he is Alec Ramsey. I mean, it's just amazing how well Kelly plays this character. It's just so honest. Uh, I mean, and you get that a lot from kid actors, but there's something about the way that that he plays it and probably about the way that the, the writers had written his lines and everything. It just feels so authentic all the way through, whether he's kind of trying to, you know, tell his mom the truth or he's, uh, you know, talking to his dad about, uh, you know, all the loot that they're, they've, they're splitting up or you know, learning how to ride from, from Mickey Rooney. I mean, whatever it is, he just really kind of has a sense of authenticity about him. And I mean, I just find him mesmerizing. And as a kid, I totally identified with him. And now as an adult, I just, I still just really connect with this kid. He says he wanted to take the role initially. This is, you can imagine a kid's mind thinking this because he really wanted to learn how to swim. That's the <laughs> that's the reason he takes this role, and he did learn how to swim because he didn't have to learn how to ride horses. That's right. He was actually born on a ranch, and he basically it was like he was born riding horses, pretty much. I mean, he had so much experience that he could do all of the stuff on his own already. Uh, and he pretty much did all of it in the film. I think the only stuff they didn't allow him to do was some uh, some of the more intense stunt work. Yeah, I, you know, I think the only uh, the only piece is is the the very final uh, race when when he's on horseback and they had to really open it up uh, and and get you know and get him. He was just too small, uh, and so riding that horse at full speed, uh, he said he was it was the horse was too big for him to to rein in. Um, so it, you know, it, it was tough because you watch this movie and you think, my goodness, clearly this kid is exceptional. And clearly you, you want to immediately go find out what else was he in? And it, it wasn't much. He did the, the sequel, uh, you know, I think three films before he graduated high school in 84. Uh, and while he planned on acting more and got a new agent, uh, he is, pickup truck was hit by an 18-wheeler, and he was taken out of the business uh, as a result of severe injuries. In that accident, after a long recovery, uh, he'd lost his film connections and uh, was never able to break back in. Uh, He is now a truck driver. He drives an 18-wheeler himself, uh, just, just like the one that ended his career. Uh, and so he's, you know, he's doing his thing. I found a video from, I was probably eight or 10 years ago of him. He's at some sort of an event uh, with horses and he's being interviewed and it's amazing. Uh, I sent it to you. Did you have a chance to peek at it? Oh, I did. Yeah. Really interesting. He's, it's, it's little Alec with a longhorn mustache and a cowboy hat. Like that's his head. It hasn't <laughs> changed at all. 
Uh, it's really uncanny. Uh, so uh, uh, amazing, uh, amazing, and and sort of sad story uh, of of Kelly Reno um, as he fell out of the business. But boy, he had such an amazing presence, even in that video. Like everything was so positive. There yeah. was just nothing negative about anything. I mean, he just was like, he seemed to just really relish the the joy that he had doing that as a kid. So I yeah. loved that. Me too. Me too. Really touching. Mickey yeah. Rooney is Henry Daly. Oh, Mickey Rooney. I don't think we've talked about him before, have we? Is that true? Is that even possible? We've never talked about Mickey Rooney on this show? Only only in context of uh, being connected to Judy Garland, like back when we talked about Wizard oh, of Oz. Oh, yeah. But I don't think we ever talked about him in a film. This, like this, and then he did that. I think it was a TV movie called Bill. Um, those two things were like, I mean, he was indelibly burned into my brain as a kid as this kind of, kind of guy. And I just always loved Mickey Rooney as a kid. He was just like, I could, I would see him and I would instantly want to watch whatever it was because I just really connected with him in this character. Totally, totally. He was, he was really perfect and, and just sort of grizzled enough uh, and yet totally approachable to a kid and that's what i find uh just wonderful about it even in the the sequence where you know he's he's coming down and he's calling and they're in the dark and he's calling out saying you know what are you doing down there you're, you're a thief you're a thief you're a thief they're yelling at each other that's just the kind of argument you can imagine from the perspective of a you know 12 year old 10 year old kid uh and and mickey rooney i think plays it really well that balance of of wizened old curmudgeon uh, to gentle father figure, um, he was just great. It sounds like he was—he uh, would never listen to Ballard's direction. It sounds like Ballard would come up and uh, start saying, "Well, try this." He's like, "No, no, I got it. I know, I know, I know what you—I know what you're going to say. I'll just go ahead and do it. Don't worry." And he would never do anything that Ballard really wanted him to do. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I don't know. Hearing Ballard talk about him, it sounds like Ballard thought he was just a, a, a strong performer and just kind of. Uh, was glad to have him on board because he really fit. I mean, this is a guy who had, I mean, he was in National Velvet. He was in a jockey in other projects. I mean, he's somebody who really kind of fit the bill to play this character. So it was just smart casting. And um, I mean, he really um, is that sort of kind of grizzled old grandpa character that kids connect with. He died in um, uh, 2014, but it, looking at his credits, 335 credits uh, to his career, um, he still had, uh, he, you know, there's a series, of, uh, he was in uh, American Dad, credited in 2015, and 2017 release of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he plays Mr. Lewis, uh, and I don't know anything about that, but I find it fascinating that it's, we've got a U.S. release, it looks like a, an Italian film, maybe, uh, a U.S. release, um, or internet release in February, which would have been, I guess, Mickey Rooney's last credited performance. Haven't seen it, but now I'm super curious. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder what this one is. It definitely yeah. looks like an Italian production. Yeah. So, uh, Terry Garr was in this film for uh, uh, on the order of about 120 frames. No, it wasn't that short. She I'm had just more bitter because she's Axton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just bitter because I love her so much. I do too. And I think that she's so great in this. It's a really interesting mother character because it's not played too sentimental. It's played um, very much just like, you know, a, a kid would see his mom. 
And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and there were some, like, the moment that really hit me this time watching the film is when when Alec is sleeping outside to sleep with uh, Black under the tree. And his mom comes out and lays a blanket on him. And then she's looking at the horse and she's like, you are kind of a pretty horse. Um, thank you for saving my son. I just wish you could have, you know, saved, saved um, his father, his dad. You yeah. Know? And I mean, that just broke my heart so much because that's really the only moment that you have of her kind of having a moment of grieving. And it really just kind of touched me the way that she was expressing it. It was, it was really powerful. Yeah, she was very sweet. I think, the, you know, for me, the big sequence is when he has to, he, uh, Alec has to come clean uh, and, and tell her that they've had a secret. And their secret is that they've been training. <laughs> I think we're too <laughs> cynical for those kinds of conversations. You know, when the old man says to the young boy in the truck in the middle of the night, you and me, we've got a secret, don't we? Do you understand what I'm saying? We have a secret. Like, we're just wait, we it, This movie is is too sweet for us not to not to look sideways at a conversation like that anymore. So when You mean he... Beavis and Butthead should not watch this movie is what you're <laughs> no, saying. No, they should not. <laughs> and that would have been the period when when we lost all faith in humanity too. It was Beavis and Butthead. And uh, <laughs> right. and and so uh you know when he when Alec has to come down and say, you know, this is the thing you should know my trainers at the door and uh, I'm going to ride in a match race with the fastest horses in in the world. Um, you need to know that that's going to be me, and I know I'm a kid, but we'll we'll get through it. So they have this conversation in his bedroom that I think is one of the most powerful conversations in the film because it, it allows you to see her come to terms with the fact that uh, when she lost her son on that island, she lost a piece of his youth that she can no longer reclaim. And I think she actually made that pivot perfectly. As a parent, I absolutely could see it. Uh, in in her in her twist there, um, uh, even as a as a young mom who had lost so much herself, I thought it was really powerful. It really is, and, and I mean Terry Garrett, you you said it. I mean she's an actress who we saw a lot of in the seventies and eighties, but man, I just like I wish that we could see more of her. You know, I think one of these days we're going to have to do a guilty pleasure series because I might just have to throw in their mom and dad save the world just to have another Terry Garrett film. In her. <laughs> we Andy. Talk about. 153 credits she's got yeah. and you're gonna pick that let's do a series and just talk about more terry Gar movies more of the good ones <laughs> yeah yes okay we could Come on, do that man. too <laughs> we could do that too. <laughs> yeah there's there's plenty she did in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, that we could talk about that were fantastic even yes. beyond she's done yes. a lot of great stuff uh and hoyt axton uh, he is Mr. Ramsey. He's Alex's father. We see him very briefly, but really cleverly portrayed in this film. And and not just his performance as an actor, but the way they shoot him uh, in, in this film, I thought was really great. It was interesting. And it kind of struck me um, off initially when I watched it. And then I kind of like, okay, I, I get what, what uh, they're doing here. It really is about this POV of Alex when we are looking at Hoyt Axton uh, as he's relaying this story and he's looking right into the camera. Um, but not just there, even when we're seeing him when he's playing poker and stuff like that, it really is just, it's all that perspective of a boy looking at his dad. 
Yeah, yeah, I really like it the way you know when when we have that conversation of of going through the loot and you know we hear Hoyt Axton's voice, we see his hands going through these. Oh yeah, this looks like a ruby. Oh yeah, no, I better have that. You know, uh, which is is funny and sweet, and also you you really learn a lot about the dad and where he is in his financial situation. You know, you can make some assumptions about the character the way it's built that way, all without seeing the face. The only time we actually see his face is, as you say, from the perspective of. Alec, I think I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Clarence Muse as Snow. This is an actor who I really don't know much about, and um, but he really struck me as an interesting character in this film, and I enjoyed, I just enjoyed his presence. And then looking him up, you realize, wow, this is really kind of the first uh, what what people credit as the first African American star. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. This was kind of a a, a very important um, actor and a character in in context of the world of cinema. And, um, I, you know, I think to that end, it was a really uh, interesting choice for Ballard to kind of bring him on to play a relatively small part. But I think that, that Clarence Muse uh, does infuse the character with some interesting elements that make it really interesting to watch. There's a moment where um, later in the film where he's sitting down chatting with Alec about the horse and everything. And he's just kind of like, you know, I don't think you should race the horse. Uh, I think, you, you know, this horse is wild. It's in his soul whatever he's saying as he's kind of chewing on his pipe, it just, it hit me as just really touching and very, very thoughtful. And I enjoyed the way um, that he did that and what he was bringing to the film. Um, Really interesting actor who unfortunately died four days before the movie ended up getting released. So he never got to see it. Um, This was his final film. I, you know, I don't have anything specific to say about any of the other human cast members. Do you? Not the human ones. We do have some uh, equine contributors. Oh, yes. A number of them, actually. Uh, And I thought this was fascinating that there were a number of horses and still one horse got an awful lot of screen time. Yeah, Cassolet was an Arabian who uh, was really kind of in the bulk of the film. I mean, this was black. That was the film, or that was the horse that... They used for all the close-ups, for all the, the relationship, the bonding stuff going on between um, boy and horse. And I think that you can kind of tell. It just, you get this sense that this kid is really connected with this particular animal. And there's just this beautiful bond there. And I loved that. Cass, uh, from, the same, uh, from the same family, uh, Cass's first understudy was an, another horse who actually came in for only two scenes uh, and and the the most important one is the stomping of the snake, uh, because they they didn't they didn't want Cass to get you know to he was not going to be a good fit for stomping on the snake right uh, in front of the boy for some reason or another. And this other horse was a better understudy. the The cooler one was the swimming because there was a contractual agreement with the owners that the the that Cass couldn't do the the dangerous swimming, uh, and so they brought in horses from France's. Camargue region, uh, which is a, a, a river, cut as a heavy river basin. And so these horses were, you know, they, they grew up swimming. And so they, they brought them in to do the swimming. Where the, the horses were fine, the swimming. The problem is they're all white, these horses, not a stitch of black on them. And so they had to be completely dyed, uh, snout to, to tail, um, to actually do the scene. And um, uh, in, in some cases, apparently, they say that you can actually see the, the dye running off of these horses. I couldn't pick it up. I didn't want to pick it up. Uh, so I wasn't looking all that hard for it. 
but um, anyhow, there were a number of horses to stand in, but about 80% of the screen time was Cassolet. So. It's a beautiful horse, and I, I think they did a lot of uh, great stuff with it. And did, I don't know if you mentioned, but the racing stuff was all actual thoroughbreds, not the racing. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Also, just speaking of animals, you mentioned the snake. I think it's just a kind of a funny story that uh, that Ballard relayed about the uh, this uh, um, cobra that was brought in. Uh, the the cobra wrangler brought this snake in, and uh, they're all looking at it and like, "Oh, that looks like really scary snake. I guess it'll be okay to do this, though. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as as long as it, you know, it's not going to do anything." And, and the guy's like, "No, no, it'll be fine." If the kid and, and and then Ballard is like, and it's it's got its fangs removed, it's no more no poison anymore, right? He's like, no, 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 it's it's just regular. And he's like, well, what are we gonna do if it if it you know if you know how are we gonna shoot a scene with a young kid? And he's like, oh no, he'll be fine. You know, if if he gets bit, we just you know, we'll take him to the hospital and we'll get him out, and he'll be out in a couple of days. <laughs> And so they they obviously had to rework some plans with the snake to figure out a better way to uh, strategize that. that. That's when the panel of glass came in and they did that. Yeah. Um, which uh, obviously uh, Spielberg stole later for uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Brilliant. Brilliant filmmaking. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's talk about getting it made. We already mentioned Caleb Deschanel. Uh, it was the, the man behind the camera. Um, just a, a beautiful eye. He has two beautiful eyes, Pete. Well, only one of them is really the most beautiful. <laughs> I think you're selling the other one short. <laughs> he had no camera operator, and uh, I heard him uh, interviewed on the, the Criterion uh, uh, interview. He says, you know, yeah, the, people ask me about why I shot the film, thinking that I'm some sort of an auteur. He said, mostly, I just, I'd never worked on a big Hollywood production, and I didn't know that I could hire a camera operator. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty much sat down and shot the thing myself. <laughs> I thought that was great. I loved that just the people making this, it just felt like they were figuring it out as they went along and Coppola was in this place where he could kind of give them uh, the leeway to do so. And it, it sounded like they shot this for a very long time and uh, just were allowed time to figure things out. I, from, I can't remember if it was Deschanel or one of them talked about when they were filming up in Canada, they were working with TV crew up there um, for all the, the scenes up in the 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 house and the neighborhood and all that. And um, the crew, TV crews are used to shooting so fast and moving through stuff so quickly that they just almost couldn't, you know, figure out heads or tails about how Ballard was shooting because he would be changing his mind and doing this and that and not getting anything done. And then they were back the next day. And, you know, it's just such a different way of working. So it's, it's very funny. I'd love to have that amount of time and, uh, and, and uh, money to just kind of <laughs> lackadaisically really right. think about things. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. your projects would be very different. Oh yes, uh, I only I only want to talk about locations. Well, I, one special reason. Okay, Sardinia, of course. Yes, beautiful island. Beautiful uh, uh, island uh, in Italy. Uh, and that's where they shot the, the obviously the island stuff. Then they came back. They spent a lot of time in Toronto. Right, yeah, uh, and that was that was also great, um, and that's where all the neighborhood, the home scenes, and then they did some stuff in Rome. The there's farm, a the giant, races, yeah, yeah, the farm, the races, and then there's stuff in, the, in, the, in Rome. There's a giant tank there, and they built at the time it was the largest, uh, the largest uh, tank set uh, that they had built at that certainly at that uh, uh, studio 
but well, I heard also, it was a Cleopatra tank. So I think I don't know if they built it. I think they were using one that was they were using one that was okay. Yeah. All right, uh, but but more importantly, most importantly, when Alec is in the movie theater watching the newsreel. We have an external shot, and then he goes inside, and we watch him watching this newsreel. That was filmed in Astoria, Oregon, at the Liberty Theater. Why? That's right, Andy. <laughs> My state. I have no idea. And I would think that it was that, that was a ridiculous mistake. Had I not been there myself, that's the thing. It's that one little sequence. The, uh, apparently, the, uh, another sequence down the street from there, when the horse has gone running and is running down the alley and jumps over the car, that yep. was also shot uh, in Oregon. But that's it. Like, that, <laughs> those are two little weird sequences that were shot uh, in, um, in uh, you know, in Oregon. Uh, Gearhart, Oregon. Nahalem, like a couple, somebody was just wandering around with a camera and a horse, and they said, hey, we should get some extra shots. It makes me think that they were doing some reshoots. That would be the thing that would make sense to me, is they got everything they wanted up in Toronto, then maybe by that time it was snowing up in Toronto, and they needed a place where it wasn't snowing, and they're like, where can we go? Hey, how about up here in Oregon? And so they went there just to get a couple shots that they missed or needed to redo or something like that. That would be my hunch. Post-production editing by Robert Dalva. You know, we, we sometimes complain about the pacing of the fil- of films and blame it on editors. <laughs> I don't have any blame uh, for the good Robert <laughs> Dalva here. No, it's, it's, it's beautifully cut. It's, uh, it, it, everything just kind of fits. And I think fitting um, the editing in with the, uh, the sound editing, I think, is a, kind of a smart conversation to have. Because I think Alan Splett, who is the supervising sound editor here, um, really found just some amazing, amazing ways to 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 use sound. And uh, it, I guess that he took a sound of a toilet, like a creaky toilet that flushed funny in the in the studio, uh, recorded that, and that was one of the sounds of the ship as the as the, as the turbines are kind of slowly coming to a stop and as the ship is sinking. Um, there's just, there's, there are a lot of really unique sounds and just, just beautiful sounds all through the film. I, I mean, he would go so far as to like taping microphones to the horse when he was on the race. So you get kind of a, a more personal uh, sound of how that really sounds when you're on a horse riding a race like that. And I, I, I just found it such a, a, a beautiful use of sound all through the film. I mean, it really, um, is, was very connecting. And I think paired with the editing, those two things really just made the film, I mean, it really puts you right in there. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, I, I don't want to lose, uh, you know, I don't want to skip too far over Robert Dalva. He went on from Black Stallion and edited such hits as Raising Cain. I'm saying that only a little bit sarcastically, uh, given how I feel about it. But then Jumanji and Jurassic Park 3 and uh, Hidalgo, Back to the Horse movies, and uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, brings him up to... Marvel, which is pretty interesting. I think it's great. Um, I, I think it's interesting also that he ended up being the person who directed the sequel, The Black the sequel. Returns. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so interesting uh, career trajectory there too. Definitely. Music, Carmine Coppola. I love this music, Pete. Oh it is yes, just, the themes are just lush and just they're just gorgeous, and they have this this uh, just this sense about them. I, I really like them. 
Um, just gorgeous stuff, but also some beautiful mixes of some drum work and some music that sounds much more Middle Eastern. And uh, then also this really interesting, I don't know if I attribute this to the music or the sound design, but during the end of the race, you get this kind of drone sound that kind of slowly starts rising. It's like you don't get a score, like normally you'd have kind of that intense score as we're getting close to seeing who's going to win and if Alec is going to beat these other horses um, in the match race, or if, uh, or, or what, but you get this um, this drone instead of the music, and it just, it it builds the the tension there in an interesting way and i don't know if i can attribute that to carmine or not but i again i just wanted to point it out i i like it too and i you know it's funny i it made me think of um you know uh, trent Reznor and uh, atticus ross uh because often when you when you when they move out of that sort of trip hop trance style um there's a space in between symphonic uh and house where you get a lot of those sort of drone sounds, and it took me right to the social network. Is that weird? Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, I can totally see that. Yeah. I'd say maybe more Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Right there. It's that It's that feel, uh, the running through the woods kind of a feel at the end. It's just such an interesting choice for the music to wrap kind of such a dramatic scene. Um, so I, I'm with you. It's fascinating. Uh, how did it do at awards season? There were uh, seven wins and six nominations. For the Oscars, it had two nominations for Best Film Editing, um, but our uh, our pal Dalva lost to Alan Heim for All That Jazz, which I will say is pretty stellar pretty strong, editing in yeah. that film. Uh, and then uh, Best Actor uh, in a Supporting Role, Mickey Rooney, was nominated but lost to Melvin Douglas for being there, which we've talked about on the show before. And yeah. uh, Melvin's pretty great in that, too. So those are tough, uh, tough losses. I'd have a hard time... Uh, picking if I had to. Um, there also was a special achievement Oscar to Alan Splett for his sound editing. I don't know um, why they chose to do a special achievement award instead of just an Oscar, but uh, I think there might not have been enough in the category or something that year, but they wanted to award him anyway. So anyway, um, all the rest of the nominations and wins seem to focus on the score, the cinematography, and the editing, though Ballard did win the LA Film Critics Association New Generation Award. Clearly, uh, you know, they're Kind of nodding to the uh, the new generation of filmmakers coming up, but Deschanel didn't get a, a even a nomination. Not at the Oscars. I mean, he got some other nominations and wins in some other um, different uh, um, uh, different awards, but not uh, the Oscars. Well, that's surprising. My heart. Yeah, that's 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 wrong. Well, here now that you asked that, let me tell you the five films that were nominated for Best Cinematography in 1979, and tell me if you think this would fit in over any of those. Okay. Apocalypse Now, Vittoria Storaro. Yeah, that's definitely right. Definitely should be there. That yes. was the winner. All That Jazz, Giuseppe Rotuno, I would say definitely should be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Black Hole, Frank V. Phillips. I remember so little of that. Yeah, um, I think that I, I, could, I could pass on that. I think it probably is nominated because it was space, it was black hole. They did some interesting things, as I recall, when they go through the black hole. So that would be my hunch for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Kramer versus Kramer, Nestor Almendros. Nope. I uh, would not call that a movie that I would watch for cinematography. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would put this in there for either black hole or Kramer versus Kramer. What's number five? In 1941, uh, William A. Fraker. I, uh, you know, it's not one of my favorite Spielberg films. I can't recall much about the cinematography, so I can't speak to it. I, I know that, that Spielberg really does 
like gorgeous cinematography in his films. So I'd like to think that maybe it did deserve to be there. If anything, I would pull Kramer versus Kramer out and put put the Black Stallion in. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There you go, Andy. Rewrite history like, again. Yeah, we we did that again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. So uh, this there were some uh, uh, sequels and remakes. We've talked about the sequel already, which came out in 1983. That was The Black Stallion Returns. There was a TV series uh, on from 1990 to 93 called The Adventures of the Black Stallion. Mickey Rooney reprised his role. And in 2003, there was an IMAX prequel called The Young Black Stallion. And all of these, Pete, were actually based on some of the books. Did you know that this was a series of books? It wasn't just a book. Amazing. And no, I didn't, especially, I mean, I had a sense that there was, that there was a book uh, before we started this. I didn't know when I first saw the movie that it was an adaptation, but this is a heck of a series. There were a lot. Farley wrote 20 books in his Black Stallion series, which he uh, stretched out from 1941 all the way to 1983 is when he wrote the last of his 20. And then with his son, Stephen Farley, he co-wrote The Young Black Stallion in 1989. And then his son continued The Young Black Stallion series after his father passed away and also wrote some additional Black Stallion novels. I think that's so interesting that there are so many Black Stallion and Young Black Stallion novels out there and I never knew. It's like I, I had no idea that they were out there. One of the things I think is so fascinating about this, I, that, that Farley started writing the, the stories that ended up making the first novel in 1931, and he was like 16, right? He was young. Wow. And, and look at what's going on in the world, like what his worldview is. He is a horse-loving young guy in Brooklyn, and... He is two years out of, you know, 1929, uh, the Great Crash. Is there, there, he's really trying to, to figure out what's going on in the world around him and, and the, the struggles and, and watching his family struggle. And this story comes to, comes to his mind, and he starts writing these stories. I mean, this is a, this is a Depression-era story, if there ever was one, uh, you know, even as it was set in— uh, forty six, I think, is what the when the movie was ultimately right. said. Um, yep. But but the the genesis of this story is is you know fifteen years before that, and and I think that's an important thing to note as you watch this movie. The cultural connection, the relevance of the film, is is from a, a much darker place uh, for certainly the community that he was he was living in. Really interesting. Um, and and the you know you already made note of the the typography of the title, but the poster the the original poster that came out when the film was released in seventy nine is is just a gorgeous poster and you just don't get posters like this it's kind of this like this worn um, it looks like just an old paper um, and then it's got this it's like an inked um, picture of Black's head. And it's just like squiggles and ink, and and it just it's it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just such an iconic poster. I've always loved it. I would love to have that like hanging on my wall. I just think it's such an incredible piece of art. Um, and I don't know who who did it, but I, I sure would love to 
to give them a pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Yeah, that's another one. You can find it in our links uh, in the show notes. Uh, uh, head over to the uh, Internet Movie Poster Awards, uh, IMPA, uh, IMPAwards.com. We've got a link directly to that entry, as we do for all the films that we do. And you can see just that poster. That's the only one that's that's in their catalog for The Black Stallion. Uh, but it is, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, how'd it do in the box office? Uh, you know, on the success of his films, like we've talked about, Coppola was able to finance this movie through his production company, American Zoetrope. They put in $2.7 million, or $8.9 million in today's dollars into the movie to get it made, which is, it seems like a relatively small budget that somehow these guys managed to do quite a bit with. I mean, hearing that they, talk, that they shot for, you know, like a year or whatever, that they really stretched the money. Um, because of Coppola's financial troubles on Apocalypse Now, however, he ended up not being able to distribute the film as he was hoping to do so, and he had to sell the distribution rights, as you said earlier, to United Artists, who happily jumped on board, giving Coppola the cash he needed to rebuild his sets after the hurricane destroyed them. That being said, United Artists still kind of put it on the shelf for a couple years until Coppola finally had to use his clout to get it released. The Black Stallion was released Wednesday, October 17th, 1979, the same day as Tom Selleck's and Jerry Reed's comedy Concrete Cowboys, and a few days before the releases of Injustice for All and Lee Marvin's Avalanche Express. It had a nice slow build and definitely found its audiences, earning $37.8 million domestically, or just over $125 million in today's dollars. I couldn't find anything on international figures, but with these, it looks like the movie earned its investors 14 times what they spent to get it made, with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $984,000. Talk about a solid start for Ballard. Sorry you had to sell the rights, uh, Francis. (laughs) (laughs) Sucks. Ouch. All right. Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. We're going to start over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can head over there, swipe over in the show notes, and tap on the flickchart link, and that'll jump you over to the flickchart entry uh, where you can add it to your very own collection. Let's see where it stacks up on ours. All right, first up, the Black Stallion, or our O Brother block, Pete. O Brother, where art thou? It is an easy one for me, the Black Stallion. It's an easy one for me too, Andy. The Black Stallion, it is. All right, next up, the Black Stallion, or Trading Places. Definitely the Black Stallion. The Black Stallion. The Black Stallion or Aliens. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Black. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta go with Aliens. (laughs) Aliens is a tough one to get over. The Black Stallion or L.A. Confidential? Oh, L.A. Confidential. Yeah, I have to go with L.A. Confidential. Yeah. The Black Stallion? Oh, or My Neighbor Totoro? Another great children's Ooh, film. This makes me pained. I'm going to say I'm, Black Stallion. I'm saying The Black Stallion. I think a lot of that is just because it's been in my life for such yeah. a long period of time. The Black Stallion. Oh, here's some nice Coppola action. The Black Stallion or The Godfather Part 2? Probably the Black Stallion for me. Yeah, me too. Uh, if it were if it were Godfather Part One, you know, you never know whose Story. head ends up in the bed. Is all I'm saying. That's <laughs> the Black Stallion. <laughs> now we know the truth is out there. <laughs> the Black Stallion or Moneyball. Moneyball. For me, it's the Black Stallion. We're That's, gonna have to flip. It's Pete. So Moneyball. All right, here we go. All right. One, One, two, two, three, three, rock. 
Oh, I'm sorry. The Black Stallion or No Country for Old Men. Uh, Black uh, Stallion. Go with No Country. All right, here we go. Here we go. One, two, two three. three. Scissors. Ooh. There we go. Slashing me up. Now we're even. Well, there you go. The Black Stallion races to number 58 out of 306. All right. I'd say that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive, Andy, for a G-rated film made in 1979. Think, let's, I mean, think about it. This is the kind of movie that is just not made anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think that Ballard was talking to, I think he said he was talking to like a distributor or, or a head of a, a studio or somebody who's just like, you know, that movie was a fluke. That that movie would never happen today, and you're, it was a fluke that it made any money back then. It's it's just one of those things that somehow tapped into people's consciousnesses, and they really liked it. And I mean, it's it's there for me, so I just I will always love this film. What's this do for your Letterbox review? Our Letterbox uh, pals, Letterbox.com slash the next reel. This is a five star film for me, and I like it quite a bit. G rated film. 1979 and it's a five-star liker today that's, that's right. pretty that's pretty cool andrew you're here it's one for me too five stars with a heart awesome yeah awesome, i had awesome. i had a blast i had a blast even though the tonal shift of the film halfway down the middle i know drives some folks a little bit crazy uh, you know i've been perusing amazon reviews and well they're delicious uh, but uh, generally there is there is some consternation about the fact that this feels like two films i'm okay with that i think um, I, I i i've made my peace with it and i enjoy both parts of this film very very much but i understand that, that that's where some criticism Lies. I think that this, that the overall, just the the art of the film, the visual of the film, the camera of the film, the performances from our main uh, actors and the work with the horse, it it just allows me to to overlook all of of these minor sort of structural issues uh, and just enjoy the ride. Yep, I totally agree. All right, where do we go from here in our uh, our series on uh, the good Melissa Matheson? We're going to be talking about the next film that she wrote, uh, which was for Steven Spielberg, and that is E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Wow, what a run. Yes. Nice, nice. Well, I look forward to that. It has been, uh, I've actually seen this one more recently, um, probably in the last two years we've watched E.T. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, you know, it's great. I'm really looking forward to digging into it. I don't think I've ever watched it all, all that closely. So, Which one are you going to be watching? Are you going to watch the uh, the uh, re-release that uh, Spielberg did, like, I don't know, in the late 2000s with, or no, was it the late 2000s or was it the late 99s when he uh, fiddled with it and removed the guns and all that sort of stuff? Or are you um, going to go back and watch the, the, I think he finally re-released the original, um, like, I don't know, five, ten years ago? Yeah, well, I can tell you, um, I'm, I'm looking right now. It was the, it's okay. the one with the guns. Not the well, radio. If it's the one with the guns, then it's the original. It's either the original or the re-release that was fixed and ungunned and regunned. Regunned, right? Yes. And that's the one where where Elliot's brother still goes out trick or treating as a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. A lot of interesting choices made. Back yes. Then. 
That's right. <laughs> I, did they do? Did he do anything else though to fix it? Like, did, was it? I, I can't remember. What, was it like? Was there any recoloring? Was it? Was there anything else done to the film when he put the guns back in? Oh, uh, when he put the guns back in, I yeah. think that he was just making the original. I mean, other than just restoring it, I mean, I don't think they went back in to digitally change things. I think yeah. that was only in the the other version, yeah. where they have the scene of ET in the bathtub and. They have more of an animated ET running and jumping through the bushes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we're not we're not going to speak of that. I assume you're not watching that version. You're going to watch your original Laserdisc version. Oh, I'm going back to VHS. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait. I think it's a good film, and I can tell you my family's looking forward to that one. So this will be a, a good Friday night movie night. Yes, it will. Until then, Andy, I think you know the drill. I I gotta go to bed. Well, you know, I can't sleep in my bed. It's just way too uncomfortable. So I'm going to go outside and crash on the ground next to Black. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Again, uh, a rich selection of critical reviews uh, of this film on Amazon.com. Where did you uh, Where did you end up? Well, I, I went with the two-star, Pete. Oh, two-star. Uh, okay. Two-star, yeah. I was going to actually do Roger B's, who gave it two stars, and his review was not watched, <laughs> but... <laughs> Thinking about that, I'm like, well, I, I can't really use that review because you didn't watch it, Roger. <laughs> uh, so I went with History Buff's review that says, the movie was not what we expected. It was anticlimactic, and we lost interest after they spent what seemed like forever running up and down the beach. Wow. So there you go. History Buff. History Buff. does not like taking time to explore things. <laughs> not enough. History on the beach is what I'm reading out of that one. More <laughs> right. history, less beaches. Mine is is one that is, um, it's a spiritual review. And we haven't had a spiritual take on a film uh, that we have reviewed on this show in some time. Possibly ever. Here it is. It is a one star out of five. The title is Not for Christians. And the review states, the one-star rating is because God's name is taken in vain, third commandment. Well, yeah. Now, now you know. Watch out. I didn't, I've never, uh, I didn't notice. I missed it apparently too. So, I don't know if that changes your letterbox review at all, but I'll, I'll, I'll patiently await that post. You keep waiting. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.